The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. As more and more companies are pledging to help stop climate change by reducing their own greenhouse gas emissions, it's hard to not have a related conversation around environmental credits. We're joined again by podcast regular, Nicole Harger, a senior director in Embark's National Quality Group, to explain more on these credits and the accounting and reporting impacts they can have. Adam and Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Glad to be back. Glad to see you, Nicole. Always a pleasure to be with you both. Yeah. Adam, let's go ahead and get started here with the basics. In the news cycles, I hear many different things thrown around that all sound like they could be coined under the term environmental credits. Exactly what do we mean when we say environmental credits? Yeah, that's a good question. I know there's a a lot of terms out out there that are used interchangeably and in a lot of different senses, you know, they could all be characterized as environmental credits. I think the most common types of credits that we hear about, especially in the news cycle, is around carbon credits. So this could include your carbon offsets as well as carbon allowances. So do two different types of carbon credits there. But there's also other, you know, environmental credits that get equal attention, I think, um, especially as it relates to things like in renewable energy projects. So those can generate renewable energy certificates or RECs, which are another form of environmental credit. And then I would, you know, tack onto this kind of like as an ancillary thing. There's also this concept of environmental tax credits. So environmental tax credits are a little bit different because obviously they have a tax impact um, for those that hold the credits. But more or less, those are kind of given to people that invest in qualifying projects um, that those investments in those qualifying projects, whether directly or indirectly, can help them generate some environmental tax credits as well. Okay, so maybe not as simple as I thought. Let's go ahead and stick with the most common form of credit around carbon for now. What does a carbon credit actually represent? What are some of the things that we need to know? Yeah, so carbon credit itself is basically an ownership. So it's an ownership of one metric ton of carbon dioxide equivalent that can either be held sold or retired to meet an entity's emissions cap or emissions target, you know, reduction target. Um, You know, we're seeing more and more companies out there um, setting goals for certain emission, you know, goals or targets that they have in the coming years. And so um, carbon credits play a big role in that. So those emission targets that people are looking to achieve, you know, sometimes they are voluntary where we see people make voluntary commitments, but then in certain industries or certain regulations or certain territories of the world, there's also mandated requirements that, you know, people have to meet certain commitments. Yeah. So Adam, I feel like we're hearing a lot of noise around environmental credits, mm-hmm. uh, particularly carbon credits. Talk to me a little bit about that. What's driving that noise? Where is it coming from? What are people up in arms about? Yeah, then it's fair to say that, you know, we're, there's definitely a rise in environmental credits, I think, is, you know, the, the 
conversation around climate change and what what people are doing, what uh, companies are doing, what certain industries are doing is is a growing conversation that we're having around the globe. Um, I think a big part of the rise is really driven by the stakeholder demand. So, you know, companies are having to look, you know, at their organization and the impact it has on their environment because their investors are asking for it, their customers are asking for it, or even their own employees are asking for it. And so the need to reduce emissions, you know, years ago, it used to be kind of viewed as like a competitive advantage if you're if you were being super environmentally conscious and you know kind of ahead of the curve more or less back in the day because you were doing some of these things. But in today's age, it's almost like a necessity for a business really to also have a focus on on the environment and the impacts that their organization has on the environment as well. Yeah. So speaking of demand from stakeholders, I know that we see companies more and more making commitments to being, quote, net zero. Yep. Talk to me about what net zero is and what role do carbon credits play in a company achieving that goal? Yeah. So net zero is a, you know, it's a it's a big target that, you know, people are making commitments towards. And and, and, and I'll, I'll back up a bit and say that, you know, the strategy towards achieving net zero is, is largely driven by um, the ability to have these environmental credits. And I'll explain that a bit more. But to achieve net zero, it's basically means you have to emit um, less greenhouse gas emissions than you take out of the environment. So you kind of think about it as like a scales of justice, if you want. So if you're going to be emitting so much greenhouse gases, you need to make sure that there's something that you're doing to counteract that emission output um, in order to achieve a net zero target or goal that you set out. And like I said, this is, you know, in a lot of cases like that, the equation is very simple, but the ability to achieve it and the strategy to achieve it can be very complex, particularly for certain industries or um, certain parts of the world. Um, achieving net zero may not be as straightforward as some other parts. Okay. So is it fair to say carbon credits are essentially uh, are essential to a successful net zero strategy yeah, uh, for yeah. companies? It's it's probably almost impossible not to have environmental credits a part of the equation for how somebody is going to achieve their their net zero commitments and you know as we see more and more companies are like like i said they're committing to decarbonization people are look you know they're pressure from investors like i said customers and the like like everyone's kind of looking towards how they can get there and how they can get there in the timeline they've set out and so you know, the use of carbon credits make it easier, um, especially for companies that are very ambitious with their climate goals um, and their their carbon emission reduction targets. Um, but it also allows companies that, you know, maybe they do have a lot, a lot of plans in mind, but it's going to take a longer period of time to achieve some of the own internal things they could do. So, you know, replacing old assets with newer assets that are more efficient, that might be a, a capital commitment that's going to take a while to get to there. So in the meantime, in order for them to still stay on track to their net zero goal, they may, you know, look to environmental credits, carbon type credits to help help achieve that. And then there are industries and there are certain production capacities that happen where you know, it, it's just not an environmentally beneficial um, process. And so there really is no way to reduce uh, the impact on the environment without a carbon 
credit or an offset or some type of environmental credit to to counteract that 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 particular um, production. And and you see that a lot in certain industries where it's just the nature of the business is that they what they do it's just it's unhealthy to the to the climate but that doesn't mean they can't do other things to help um try to achieve net zero so nicole i know that adam mentioned earlier that carbon credits can either be characterized as offsets or allowances talk to me a little bit about the differences between the two and some of the nuances there so carbon allowances are issued by regulatory agencies in carbon compliance programs and you also you will um often hear these referred to as cap and trade programs and an, an emission allowance in a cap and trade program can be viewed as a marketable instrument that's certified by a regulatory body um, that allows its holder to emit a set amount of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases in most programs the supply of emission allowances is limited to a man limited to a mandated cap on greenhouse gas emissions, which is set by legislation or regulation to make sure that the environmental goal is met. An entity that emits more emissions than its allowed limits um, must either buy allowances in the market or pay a penalty. So the marketable allowances provide more flexibility to entities in meeting their own reduction or compliance goals. For example, you know, an entity may need significant time and investment to implement either new technology or equipment um, to help achieve emission reductions and the use of these allowances provides some relief for them. Um, you'll often see these types of programs in oil and gas and power and utility and automotive industries. Yeah, so I know, for example, that airlines participate in and even offer credit offset programs uh, to their customers. How are those offset credits created and used? Talk to me a little bit about that. Um, in simple terms, carbon offsets are created from carbon reducing projects, such as reforestation projects or building renewable energy facilities, um, whose purpose is to produce and sell the credits generated for every MTCO2E reduced, avoided, or removed from the atmosphere by the projects. Um, there are numerous carbon offset programs and various forms of verification in the carbon offset market. Verification of offset programs is an evolving area and questions have been raised about whether verification is truly substantive. So are the offsets incremental to the emissions that would have been reduced absent the offset project? Companies are looking for offsets to seek out these credits to help offset some of their own emissions. Offsets are often used to help an entity achieve a self-imposed carbon reduction goal rather than a government-imposed requirement and are measured in tons of CO2 equivalents. These credits are then applied against an entity's own scope one, two, and three greenhouse gas emissions. So to avoid inadvertent greenwashing, companies that are considering investing in offset projects or purchasing carbon offsets should perform their own due diligence. So then the question is, is there a market to buy these offsets? How does this work? Do you trade them, buy them? Where yeah, do you go? absolutely. Um, and it's actually a rapidly growing market to no one's surprise, just given all of the carbon reduction goals and targets that we are seeing. So Adam, I know that you had mentioned renewable energy certificates or RECs as another form of environmental credits. Mm -hmm. Do these function similarly to carbon credits or is there something different that we need to be thinking about? 
No, they have some similarities for sure. So, um, you know, RECs similar to like carbon offsets, they're, they're tradable instruments as well that are issued essentially when you've got one megawatt hour of power that's generated and delivered to the grid essentially comes from a renewable energy resource. So it could be a solar plant, a wind plant, you know, hydroelectric, geothermal. So some type of renewable energy project that basically generated that power. Um, RECs, you know, similar to kind of carbon offsets, um, you know, they're used by utilities as well to meet either their own compliance requirements um, or they may also be used by other entities that just want to demonstrate that they support renewable energy and they're, um, you know, they're committed to renewable energy resources as a, as a form of, you know, future energy consumption. One thing to know about each REC is they all have kind of unique identification numbers. Um, so it really limits and it kind of prevents people from like double dipping on a REC. So only the benefits of a REC can essentially be claimed by the holder of the REC itself. Um, with whatever associated registry, you know, issued the REC. Uh, purchasers of RECs are allowed to use the RECs to help lower their own scope two emissions. So scope two greenhouse gases are essentially those indirect greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with the purchase of electricity, steam, heating, or cooling that, a, you know, a company might um, need to run its own operations. Um, so, you know, I think we won't get too much into greenhouse gases here. We've talked about this on previous podcasts where we, we did an ESG series that kind of talked about the different types, but just as a reminder that when you're thinking about greenhouse gases, so your scope two or scope three emissions, those aren't things that actually physically were generated by the company itself. So scope two is really, um, they're included in your greenhouse gas inventory, but they're just a result of, you know, the ener- the organization's own energy use, which is why they're they're captured as a reduction using these RECs. So where does one even obtain or acquire a REC? Yeah, so there's a there's a few ways you could actually obtain a REC. So the most direct method would be like you'd essentially just invest in some type of renewable energy project directly that generates RECs. Um, you know, similar to carbon offsets, you know, as we've seen a rise in the popularity of environmental credits, there's also the ability to purchase RECs on the third party market. So there's, there's active markets out there where you can voluntarily, you know, buy and sell RECs. And so there's an active market for that. Um, and then RECs can also be, um, generated for entities that use different types of agreements. So you'll hear kind of in the renewable space, the concept of power purchase agreements or PPAs, and there's also virtual power purchase agreements. So VPPAs, um, those also allow, um, entities to obtain RECs. Okay. So talk to me now about PPAs and how do those work, um, Yes, a PPA essentially is a contract. It's between whoever the developer is of the renewable energy project and then the buyer. So under a PPA, uh, the developer will typically, you know, they receive a fixed price for each megawatt um, hour of renewable energy that's produced. And then the buyer is going to essentially receive the associated RECs over the time um, that the project produces and sells that electricity. So the recipient of the RECs, who's the buyer, you know, they're going to then again, they're able to use those RECs to help um, achieve their own climate goals because the RECs can all, you know, can be used as a way to reduce those scope two emissions of greenhouse gases. Um, and then just to caveat here, the difference between kind of the the PPA and the virtual PPA really just has to do with like the physical delivery of energy. So in a PPA, 
energy must be physically delivered to the buyer, whereas in a virtual one, it doesn't. So just some nuances there. Yeah, that's helpful. So Nicole, I want to switch back over to you. So we're already this far into the discussion and we haven't hit how the accounting actually works, right? So lots of nuances here. Uh, what does that look like? What are some of our listeners need to be thinking about? So there's actually limited guidance um, on a lot of these areas specifically. So other areas of gap are used in practice by analogy. So because of this, companies um, are encouraged to disclose their accounting policies for these credits when material. Um, so thinking about carbon credits first, both allowances and offsets. Um, when carbon credits are marketable or tradable, they are generally recognized today as assets on the balance sheet. This is just based on the concept that, um, you know, the definition of an asset. So as we talked about earlier, there is a growing trend in environmental credit markets available to actively buy and sell the credits. Um, so another way to think about it is if a credit could be bought or sold on such a market, resulting in a change in cash flows, it would support that it should be an asset. Okay, so then how are these assets even classified on the balance sheet? So carbon credits are generally classified as either as inventory or an intangible asset. The distinction lies in whether the asset is held for use or just held for sale. Um, these asset classes have been discussed previously by both the FASB and SEC informally and are used in practice as the most commonly accepted approaches for classifying these assets. Um, the classification of the asset also impacts how the accounting um, on the income statement and the cash flow statement should be presented. So for example, environmental credits accounted for as inventory would be charged to cost of sales when traded or used. Um, on the other hand, environmental credits accounted for as intangible assets may or may not have amortization expense associated with the assets, depending on the nature of that asset as a finite asset or not. Um, there is diversity in practice as well as it relates to amortization of credits accounted for as intangible assets. All right. So you know my next question, Nicole. <laughs> How, expand a little bit more on the diversity in practice around recording amortization expense. What does that look like? Sure. So some entities conclude that the economic benefits of their carbon credits, so for example, emission allowances and some carbon offsets, do, do not diminish until they are consumed. And then and they're, therefore, um, they do not amortize any costs recognized. Instead, they expense the cost of their emission allowances upon use, so i.e. when the allowance is submitted to the regulator. However, other entities may elect to amortize the recorded cost of their allowances over the compliance period. In both cases, the emission allowances are subject to evaluation for impairment. Okay, super helpful. Adam, wanna come back over to you. Does a reporting entity ever need to record a liability for any of its carbon credits? Um, and when we talk about the cap and trade programs, it seems like there could be circumstances where there this might be appropriate. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point to raise. Um, you know, under some of those programs, you know, we had talked about, especially when, you know, your emissions kind of exceed your allowances there that there, some of those programs would enforce like a penalty on you um, that could be incurred in those circumstances. So I think it's always gonna be facts and circumstances based, but 
you know, programs that are designed that way um, potentially could trigger the need to record a liability if you've incurred that obligation just based on the fact that you've emitted more than you you're currently allowed. And and that obligation is really just representative of the fact that the reporting entity has to acquire more environmental credits um, essentially to satisfy the obligation because their emissions levels have exceeded those allotted limits. Yeah. So, Adam, question then is, Talk to me about the difference between RECs and accounting for carbon credits. What are some of those uh, nuances there that we need to be aware of? Yeah, so there's actually a lot of similarities um, between carbon credits and RECs for accounting purposes. But, you know, as Nicole was basically mentioning, just in general in this space, the guidance is um, it's limited. And so because it's limited, there is diverse views that are both acceptable, but um, diverse views that have to be thought through for reporting entities to consider based on their own facts and circumstances. And, and, and we'll get into it, but there's certain like policy elections that need to be made. So similar to other, you know, credits, carbon credits, you know, RECs can also be characterized as either inventory or intangible assets. And this is, again, it's a space where a company needs to make an accounting policy election. Um, on how they view RECs, whether they're, you know, inventory that's kind of held for sale or it's an intangible asset. And whichever approach they take, they just need to make sure that they're applying it consistently to all RECs. Um, and then another area where there's diverse viewpoints is around whether the RECs are viewed as actually an output from a renewable energy um, project or they're viewed as like a government incentive. And just to maybe expand on those two viewpoints here. So some view RECs that are essentially a derivative of the utility of a renewable energy project. So it's embodied in the environmental attributes that that project produces. So because RECs are dependent on a specified facility and they're kind of integral to the full utility of that facility, people will say that they're an output of that facility. Um, there's other people that believe that RECs are intangibles because they're not actually physically produced and nothing's actually generated, but instead RECs are going to be issued by a regulatory body. And so this oversight body that issues these RECs are really just giving you some type of incentive as a result of that project, but they're not actually produced from the project itself. Um, I would say many preparers today, I think, tend to lean towards the government incentives is kind of the approach, but both are still um, acceptable kind of positions to have. And again, it's a policy election that you just would want to apply consistently. Um, and the reason I, I want to emphasize like why it even matters is it, it really comes down to like how you capitalize a rec on the balance sheet if you generate the rec yourself. So like if you have an investment in a renewable energy project that generates recs, and you view the REC as an output from that renewable energy project, um, you're essentially going to have to figure out the cost of operating that facility, what costs should be allocated to the generation of that REC, because you'll need to capitalize those costs for that REC um, on your balance sheet. And that's regardless of whether the REC's inventory or an intangible asset. Uh, on the other hand, if you take the government incentive approach, um, there's no cost of production because you're not viewing it as an output of anything. So that means there's actually no cost allocated to the rec. So you wouldn't actually record anything on your balance sheet. Um, what companies will do that view it as a government incentive, they just tend to track the recs they generate um, internally. And so it's more like bookkeeping they do for those recs themselves. And then I'll say, you know, we talked about 
how RECs can be obtained. You know, we said you can generate the RECs directly yourself or through an investment in a project, but then, you know, we talked about the marketplace as well. So if you purchase a REC on a marketplace, then, you know, the accounting is a little bit more straightforward because whatever you pay for it is what you're going to record um, the cost of it itself. So Adam, since RECs can be considered intangible assets, how do we uh, view that from an amortization perspective? Any expense there that needs to be recorded? Yeah. So I guess it, you know, we are trying to think about like the period or timing of when you would amortize that asset. So RECs that are, you know, you, you view them as intangible assets, the expense you recognize is going to be tied to when the entity actually uses the REC. So this is when they, you know, decide to voluntarily use it to reduce their emissions. Um, the REC is retired. That's when they're going to recognize the expense. Um, so just think about like if they're going to apply this REC towards their net zero goals and they're going to surrender it to whatever oversight regulatory body or agency, then at that point is when you would amortize the REC. Um, and then I'll also say just in general about REC accounting, like we're, we're kind of talking about the use of RECs for obviously uh, climate climate goals, climate targets, reduction of emissions and things like that. But there is, there is, you know, a lot of people out there that also like the sell of Rex is like a, is a large component of their business. And there is specific accounting considerations around the sale of Rex, but we're just probably not going to get into that today. So <laughs> just want to caveat on that. Yeah. Well, and so talk to me a little bit about any circumstances where environmental credits um, might not be recorded as an asset. Is that ever an option and what does that look like yeah so we you know we mentioned the one at least when it relates to um you know recs that are used as a government incentive so if it's viewed as a government incentive because no cost is allocated we're not going to record an asset in those cases but there's other circumstances too where like a rec is in, is obtained and then it's immediately retired um so essentially you would just expense it upon obtaining it um, and that's going to generally be when, you know, they decide to immediately use the rec towards their, um, you know, net zero goals or their emissions reductions or whatever the case may be. Um, and so the premise is there that you should immediately expense it because at that point, once you've immediately retired the rec, there really is no future economic benefit for that asset, um, which is essentially the definition of an asset. So you can't have an asset if there's no future economic benefit. Okay. So, Nicole, coming back over to you, we have covered a ton today. And a big theme that I've continued to hear is a lot around judgment, diversity in practice, need to evaluate facts and circumstances closely, so on and so forth. Given the various challenges and diversity in practice around accounting for these credits, what is the FASB doing, if anything, around this? So they, they, they've heard us loud and clear um, in May of 2022, a project for environmental credits was added to their technical agenda. And this project covers um, considerations for emissions allowances, renewable energy certificates, RINs, and carbon offset credits. Okay, so what's the latest with the project? Any update? So it's still in the early stages um, as of the date of this recording, and it's in um, initial deliberations. 
And as part of the project, as part of adding the project to their technical agenda, they did specify that they're, they're going to cover recognition, measurement, presentation, and disclosure requirements for both purchasers of and entities whose activities generate environmental credits um, that are used voluntarily or to comply with government obligations. We do encourage listeners who are likely to be impacted by any changes to the guidance over environmental credits um, to pay attention to this project, including an exposure draft that's going to be issued by the FASB, and then also weigh in on any concerns or viewpoints um, as their final standard setting commences. All right. So Adam, Nicole's talked about what the FASB is doing. Tell me a little bit about the SEC. Anything that they're doing for their registrants? Yes. So I think it's fair to say for most people in the accounting and reporting space that um, if you aren't aware, the SEC has a proposed climate rule that's out there, um, which obviously has received a lot of attention. A lot of stakeholders are um, weighted on that. And we're, at least as of this recording, awaiting the final release of the rule. But um, just thinking about aspects of that proposed climate disclosure rule um, that relates to environmental credits, there are parts of it in the proposed rule where they have specific requirements for entities that are using these credits um, as part of their strategy. So to no one's surprise, I think, but, you know, entities that use the credits or offset programs or the like, um, you know, clearly you're going to have to describe and disclose in your filings, the use of those credits and those programs as part of those disclosure requirements. Um, and then registrants that are using it towards, you know, achievement of a certain climate goal or, you know, target that they've set, they're going to be required to disclose, you know, more or less how much these credits have played in the progress towards those, you know, targets or goals. Um, and then also how much their own changes in their own operations and things they're doing have, have, have played a role. So just kind of drawing the parallel between the two, like what you're doing specifically for your own operations versus like what you're relying on credits to help you reduce those emissions. And then there's also some disclosures around just the risks associated with carbon, or I should say environmental credits more broadly. And that that really ties to whether, you know, you just got to think about short-term and long-term risk because a lot of these credits are, you know, derivatives of um, regulatory or compliance programs. But just thinking about like, you know, if there's changes in regulations that reduces the availability or the markets that are there, like if something happens with the markets or the cost of these credits, like how could, how those changes could impact, you know, a company's strategy towards achieving their climate goals or targets um, is something else like kind of ancillary that relates to environmental credits that you'd have to think about for disclosure. Yeah, well, this was great. Nicole, always a pleasure having you on the show. Adam, thank you again for all of the insight that you continue to provide to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on environmental credits. Um, and thanks for tuning in to Accounting Matters, powered by Embark. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.